CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with my co-host Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And it is baseball season, but not yet bison season in Buffalo. Today was supposed to be the home opener downtown and not rained out. But the field is too wet to play. Was there a Crash Davis incident down there at the ballpark, Jonah? Did uh, did uh, a veteran player bust up the sprinkler system? Uh, what happened uh, with uh, with the Bisons not being able to play on a what looks like a pretty nice day? Well, I don't know that. There was what was described as an unforeseen event that damaged the infield tarp. So maybe Crash Davis was responsible for that. And that ultimately led to the Bisons having to use a backup tarp from Rochester that did not work as well and allowed the field to get much wetter and soggier and muddier than it might have been with the original tarp. And th this season was supposed to start, at least the home portion of the schedule was supposed to start with a game on Tuesday, and now it's Thursday going into Friday, and nothing's been played yet. You got a doubleheader double header scheduled for Friday, another doubleheader scheduled for Sunday, but it hasn't I – mean, I'm checking right now to see if they've updated it. But as of 4.30 here on Thursday, they haven't yet announced the, the pitch times for these Friday games, and it's still a bit up in the air if the field will dry out enough for these games to even be played on Friday, although it it's, seems to be expected that it will be. But I believe it's still a wait and see and wait and watch the grass dry and the mud dry and hope for the best situation for a little while here. Well, if the weather does uh, improve, although it looks a little dreary here for the next few days, but if it does improve, uh, would be a nice uh, way for you to spend your religious holiday weekend out at the ballpark and the uh, the arrival of spring and all the different metaphorical aspects, all the symbolism. Uh, backup tarp. Uh, that's an interesting concept. I guess I'd, I'd never thought that a team would need a backup tarp, but I don't know why this is reminding me of what I saw from uh, Mike Zeisberger, the longtime NHL reporter based up in Toronto, uh, that uh, Curtis Joseph was spotted going into the arena uh, a few days ago, and it was confirmed by Mike Zeisberger that he was the e-bug, the emergency backup goaltender. Could you imagine Curtis Joseph coming in out of the stands uh, as uh, as a goaltender in an NHL game today? I guess that's more plausible than the Zamboni driver that won the game for the Carolina Hurricanes a couple years back up in Toronto. But anyways, that's a little tangent. So a backup tarp brought in from Rochester. Yeah, I think if you really want to get in the weeds on this, uh, maybe the Bison should have a better backup option for the future because, as I understand, they have a very good tarp. But once that tarp was ripped or damaged, they did not have a suitable backup tarp. So maybe having two of these uh, top-of-the-line tarps in case something happens to one of them and you need the other one. This is a thing that is really unique to early April and the start of the baseball season starting this early. While there, there will be rainstorms and rain delays and postponements later in the baseball season, there's a lot, le lot less likely to be three days of rain and a lack of sun and a lack of warm weather to dry out the field. So this was the earliest starting baseball season in history for the Bisons starting a game in March on the road for the first time in the history of the franchise. It wasn't going to be the earliest home opening date, but it was among the earliest, I think five and 35 years. And it's just goes to show that in this market, in this climate, in this area of the country, 
it's difficult to play baseball games this early in April. Yeah, and it's it, this is minor league baseball, and I do know it's the AAA. And uh, but the one thing I think that does just pop into my mind is as we're talking about this now, I didn't think we'd be talking about tarps for this long, but you know, one of the great boons of having the Toronto Blue Jays playing their games in Buffalo were all the upgraded facilities and all the different things that were going to be left behind that makes uh, Buffalo almost a four A locale as opposed to triple a or major league somewhere in between with all its cool stuff that was good enough for the blue jays and i don't know it just seems kind of strange to have your opening day uh delayed by something that was was not mother nature really it was a tarp i think it's unfortunate because those upgrades that the blue jays made when they played their major league games here a couple years ago have i think benefited the bison's organization and there's some new mandates in AAA baseball for minor league stadiums that, you know, in Syracuse and other areas are maybe struggling to meet those standards. And the Bisons kind of had that done for them. and didn't have to pay for yeah. it. They didn't have to do it themselves. And as I understand, the Bisons are known as, as having a, a very good grounds crew in their tarp and, and the way they have been able to uh, protect the field from rain. And even when the Blue Jays were playing here, there were games that got rained out and they were able to get back on there and play rather quickly. It just so happened that the wind that we got damaged the tarp and, uh, you know, they did not have the proper backup tarp in place in time to fix that situation. You covered a lot of those Blue Jays games, and it's too soon to know, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it isn't. I I don't want to assume because I don't think I've ever asked you about this. Have you noticed beyond the uh, structural or renovative type things that, maybe happened around the ballpark and with the locker rooms and the weight rooms and things like that. Have you noticed much lingering impact just in terms of what these baseball games did for um, the sport here in Western New York? I think that maybe there were a lot of people who were hoping it was going to help bring about some sort of kickstart or revitalization or, or what have you with baseball. And I just don't, I think we've kind of fallen back into the way baseball has always been looked at in Buffalo, a very important part of the sporting fabric, but I just don't feel like the blue Jays have left that much of a mark from a spiritual sense uh, when it comes to baseball. I think it did a little bit. Um, It's a little tough to gauge because we're not, this is no longer a, pandemic restriction season but we had a little bit of that last year and when the Bidens came home at the end of that season when the Blue Jays were playing here it did seem like the Blue Jays playing here in the summer of 2021 energized the fan base a bit for that Bison's return in September of that year I don't know how much that carried over into last year maybe anecdotally I think some people uh, that hadn't been to the ballpark in a while went to a major league game and enjoyed themselves and were maybe a little more likely to come back but the big difference is you know, the Bisons are opening their season this week against the Worcester Red Sox, not the Boston Red Sox. Worcester, big... Jonah. Oh, correct, correct. Worcester. Worcester. But same point remains. That Mike Rodak's you know, hometown, I think, Worcester. A lot of a lot of the energy is John Cena as well. A lot of the energy that I think came with watching the Blue Jays played in Buffalo had a lot to do with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the visiting teams and Major League Baseball and being these games, some of them were on national TV, and that doesn't happen now. But I do think that it's minor league baseball and it's the promotions and the the events around the field that and celery, the races and things like that. Star it's Wars pretty, night. Yeah, sure. Symphony. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's never gonna be uh a minor league baseball operation that, that gets the baseball fans as excited as major league baseball will. But I think the Bisons are in a good place having gotten a little bit of that boost and now being able to come back and have a full promotion schedule and, and bring back some of the things that they weren't able to do in past seasons and hopefully have a full season. Unfortunately, the weather has contributed to this first week uh, getting at least halfway washed out. And it was a week when, most of the local schools were on spring break and they had some kids day promotions and they're still going to have a number of games over the weekend, but that full week of really reintroducing Bison's baseball to uh, the community has been delayed and and continues to be delayed uh, throughout this week. 
Well, one of the cool things about minor league baseball, of course, uh, is the ability to see players who are headed to the major leagues uh, on their way up. Uh, they're getting their swings. Uh, they're getting their innings. Um, they're working on their pitches, uh, trying to uh, refine that slider, whatever it is. And another part that has been pretty fascinating with baseball that we're seeing uh, the fruits of it now at the major league level is the technical aspect uh, that uh, the sport has been working on through the minor league systems. And so these are some things I've been pretty excited about over the first week of uh, major league baseball, uh, the things that we've seen uh, implemented in the ma uh, minor league level, the pitch clock, uh, the bigger bases, uh, no shift. I mean, not all these things were worked up, uh, you know, in, in drastic um, experimental form in, in the minor leagues, but it, we're seeing, I think a, uh, a new phase of major league baseball. The games are faster uh, in, in both um, duration and on the base paths because of the bigger bases where uh, stolen bases are up. Uh, uh, the number of times you're allowed to throw over the first base to hold a runner is limited. So that is giving the green light to uh, runners to steal a lot more, which is one of my favorite parts of the game. Uh, the pitch clock, of course, as I mentioned, is is stopping um, uh, stopping these uh, pitchers from dawdling so much. And, you know, I, I talk to my son about it all the time. I check on it because he follows the games a lot more um a lot more closely than I do the Cleveland guardians uh, where we have the baseball package. So we get those games and um, I tune in every now and then I'll, I usually have a game, a game on, not always the guardians game, but he's always checking in uh, with them and James Karachak. And I don't know that you've ever seen this guy work uh, for the uh, Cleveland guardians. He is the most fidgety pitcher. He drives you nuts. And I'm, a Guardians fan. I, I grew up in Cleveland, and because I don't cover baseball, I, it's a sport that I feel like I can actually have a rooting interest for. So I do follow them pretty closely, and this guy is murder to watch pitch. I would love to see him uh, traded to uh, the National Lacrosse League, not not just off the off the Guardians, but out of baseball. Uh, Slips the ball up in the air. He's got to spin it a little bit, and he touched. He pumps, pops it into his glove a few times, and then he's got this weird thing with his leg, and he's got it. And the the batters are going nuts. The umps are standing up. They're not even down in a crouch, and he's getting balls called on him now because he's taking too long to pitch, and he's all screwed up. And I think his ERA is uh, in the twenties, and he's got a couple of losses already. Let me just take a look here. Uh, Karachak, he's zero and two in four games out of the bullpen. He's pitched three innings. He's given up four earned runs, including a homer, three walks, five strikeouts. Oh, his, his ERA is 820. Uh, so Karachak is uh, struggling a little bit, and I'm happy for it. Uh, so <laughs> I hate to see a, a human suffer, but this is sports. Um, anyways, but cool stuff that we've seen in minor leagues uh, applied there, tested out. And uh, Jonah, I know that, you know, you're – you go out to the ballpark quite a bit. Uh, what do you know of, so far about the robot umps that are coming to the Bisons? I know they don't start the season there, but they're going to be um, they're going to be instituted here in a bit. Yeah, you won't see them at the games this weekend. But the first home game that the Bisons play that will have the automatic ball strike system is May 9th. And if if you pay attention to road Bisons games, they'll play in a few games the, the couple weeks before that under that system, which will only be used in games played on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And then on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday games, the ABS system will be usable for challenging a ball or a strike up to three times a game. I, I'm interested to see how it plays out. You know, I was interested in watching a game with the pitch clock when I went to uh, the Bison Stadium last year and, and how much that sped up the game. I don't know if this is going to change the timing of the game and the fan experience quite as much, but it changes the game in a lot of ways and this is being tested at the AAA level to possibly be instituted at the major league level and if it goes smoothly enough or if they work out the kinks and figure out how they want to implement it it's probably the future of baseball that robots if you will or artificial intelligence will tell us 
whether the pitch is a ball or a strike, and there won't be any room for interpretation. There'll be a strike zone, and that ball will either be inside of it or outside of it or too high or too low. And it makes the game more precise. I think players might prefer that to know it's a ball or strike and not in the whims of an umpire. But it will change the traditional experience of baseball and how it's played and officiated and umpired. And I don't know if that will be for the better or the worse, or maybe it won't change in any way that we, we perceive it that much. Yeah, I, so that's the argument uh, from purists uh, about umpires. And I've even heard it said before uh, on, uh, I think, um, uh, Real Sports on HBO uh, did a uh, deep dive into robot umps a couple of years ago. And... Uh, the pushback from whoever was the spokesman or the person speaking on behalf of the umpires uh, was saying, you know, people come to the game. They want to see the umpires. Uh, they want to see it. And I was like, bullshit. Whoever wants to buy, whoever bought a ticket saying, man, I can't wait to see these umps and, uh, and their, their signature calls and their, you know, the punch outs. And uh, the only time that I could recall ever thinking about an umpire is when, I was a kid and we would have a ticket to a game that had a particularly volatile manager like Earl Weaver or um, Billy Martin. And you'd, be, and you'd think on the drive to the stadium, man, I wonder if Earl Weaver is going to get tossed tonight. Uh, but that was had nothing to do really with the ump. Um, and we had, you know, friend of the show back when we were on terrestrial radio, Eric Burns, the uh, former major leaguer, uh, played a lot of time with the Oakland A's, and uh, he's uh, he's a big Bills fan, which is why he's who was on the show a while back. But he is one of the most vocal um, proponents of the electronic strike zone. It drives him crazy, and his work with uh, baseball, the MLB Network, um, he has been, you know, pounding the table for for this for a long time. And it's been worked into baseball over the years. In 2019, there was an independent league uh, that did it, the Atlantic League, I believe it was, uh, the Arizona Fall League. Uh, it's been tested out at the single-A level. But this is the first widespread collecting of data. And I like the way that baseball is doing it. I'm a little confused at first when you hear it's only going to be during the weekdays or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then the rest of the time it's going to be umps. But the more I think about it, you know, the more they want to be able to see which one works. Maybe there's a, a a meshing of the two systems that works, or maybe you want to transition to get people uh, a little bit more used to it. Maybe you don't want to make it as jarring. Maybe you go with one umpire behind the plate and the rest of it is done automatically. Uh, but it does, it is crisp um, when you see it in tennis, for instance, and it is obvious and it's automatic. They challenge and it is right on the line. They show it within 10 seconds, whether or not the ball was in or out. You never get an argument from the players because it it doesn't lie. You could see it right there in, in, in real time. There's no interpretation when it comes to a lot of these things. Uh, and um, I think baseball is better for taking out the, um, the subjectivity of a lot of calls. There were a lot of people who were upset about um, instant replay and how it would impact the in-the-neighborhood double play, for instance. And I always thought the in-the-neighborhood double play was stupid. Uh, you you got to touch the bag. And yes, it was for safety and these other things, but it hasn't hurt the game. In fact, I think it's helped it. There were times when a, you know, the umpire would allow a the, the second baseman or the shortstop to be six feet off second base and, and he would call it an out um, for uh, so that way he could avoid the slide. Uh, and now you don't have that anymore. And um, so anyways, that's that's my long my long rambling thing about how I, I really like what the minor league baseball has been able to contribute to baseball in this way. Um, and uh, I'm excited about uh, my new electronic strike zone overlords. Well, I think you, you raise a good point. As far as the competition on the field, even though it's not the traditional way baseball has been umpired, it is going to bring more purity to the game and that a strike is a strike and a ball is a ball and there's no room for argument. As far as the rep, the umpires making their calls and the punch outs, I do wonder if that's the kind of thing that we don't think we're going to miss until it's gone and it's part of the atmosphere and the 
just the overall ambiance of baseball, that that's part of the game. And maybe even though the robot umps are going to be telling us what is a ball and a strike, maybe it'll be the umpires will still be able to do their calls and announce that to the fans, that that's something that enhances the fan experience of the game. But one thing that is going to be missing and a lot less in the game, maybe for better, but maybe for worse, is arguing calls. There's really you can't argue with a robot, and as you mentioned with tennis, there's nothing to argue. It's pretty definitive. I'm not going to miss with, the. I'm not going to miss arguments. Isn't that part of the game though? The the umpire, the manager's kicking dirt, and all, that's part of the show. No. Yeah, well, that's what I'm wondering. Is it? Is, I think it's a little bit like fighting in hockey, where maybe it's not necessary, but it is part of the entertainment spectacle. And when there's less and less fighting in hockey, the fans seem to miss it in some form. I don't know. I mean, so much of it's childish and it's okay. So the most entertaining arguments are because they're ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you think of the times that it will make uh, the top 10 sports centers, top 10 at night. It's because the manager is making a total asshole out of himself. And, and it's usually not the ump and what, a, well, here's a part of baseball that is truly vile to me and it always has been. And it, it's with, Every sport, but you see it mostly in baseball and some in hockey too, is the arrogant umpire slash referee who is going to ring you up whether this ball is anywhere near the strike zone because of the way you are. We saw we saw it happen in college baseball a couple of weeks ago, and I forget the teams, but um, a, a player made a a pretty. Um, emphatic body gesture over a called ball or a called strike at the plate. And he didn't really argue too much, but he pouted. And on the next pitch, it was nowhere near. And the ump called strike three and walked away. It was his way of saying F you. Uh, and I don't need my umpires or referees saying F you to anybody because it's never been about them. And they take things personally and, Oh, you, I mean, I know this is a while ago, but when Barry Bonds first came into baseball, I mean, there was he had to swing at every pitch that was in the area code uh, because umpires were just want they wanted him they wanted to strike him out, and uh, there are players that are like that. They get squeezed, um, people who think they don't get a fair shake, and some over time seem to add up, um, and it's happened less and less, I think, in baseball because. We see that automated strike zone that broadcast networks put on their on their um, on their television screens, and you don't want to be the umpire that is habitually missing the strike zone or gets a reputation for uh, screwing over a player just because uh, you had an argument with him the night before on a hard play at third base uh, or whatever. Um, you just don't see as much anymore, but it still does exist. You know, the hard ass umpire, um, the mic'd up umpire, it happens on a kid or it's somebody's mic'd up and you and you get to listen to the to the ump uh try to put somebody in their place when he's you know just trying to pick a fight. Uh so I would love for that to be gone. Uh I think it's one of my most hated parts of sports, not just in baseball, but the overbearing um uh, the over officious jerk, isn't that the over I'm right? Saying? The over officious jerk. That is who who can say it better than that. So I would like for that, and if that costs me a a, a theatrical uh, or a hilarious argument uh, two or three times a season in baseball, that I don't have to watch it on practically a not necessarily a nightly basis, but let's say you know I watch enough baseball that I think I see it a, a handful of times a week where I see an umpire who just thinks a little too seriously of himself. Uh, and uh, I, I would be happy if that went away. So uh, the Bisons game would be played today if there was a dome on that stadium, Jonah. And uh, that takes me to another topic this week. Uh, Bill's stadium documents have moved along. I don't particularly think it's newsworthy uh, because this is something that's been uh, you know, it's all part of the process. Uh, Erie County Legislature has 30 days to review these documents. They could review them in, in, immediately and rubber stamp them if they want, but they can take 30 days to look at them. The newsworthy part for me is that it's taken so long. 
uh, that this is one of those parts uh, of the process that has been uh, a week away for the last four months. And it's finally come to fruition that uh, these documents were passed along. They've all been forwarded for final review. And this is not negotiation anymore. It should be said, this is not any, it's all, all been done. All negotiations are done and complete. Uh, everything's been signed off on. This is a document review to make sure there isn't a typo, uh, to make sure there isn't one last um explanation that needs to be made on verbiage or whatever. Um, so within 30 days, uh, there could be a shovel in the ground on uh, the other side of Abbott Road and a ceremonial um, first dig for the Bills new stadium. Um, I, I do think it's interesting because it is such a trivial part of the process uh, what happened this week, that it reopens all the things that people think are important because you try to turn it into a story. Uh, let's make this newsworthy. And one of the big takeaways from yesterday in Mark Poland cars was why is there no dome on this stadium? Haven't we settled this? I mean, why? <laughs> if if that's what you have to fall back on as the big takeaway for Mark Poland cars talking about the stadium, then it's probably not as uh, significant of a development that these documents have been passed along. And let's not just try to create a story. Yes, we could memorialize it with uh, a, a passing mention uh, that these documents have been uh, forwarded uh, or a for the record type story in 300 words that says uh, that this has happened and uh, it, it's close to a shovel. But anyways, your thoughts. I, so I like it. And I understand what you're saying, that it's probably past the point of putting that into the deal and the contracts and actually building a stadium that has a roof, but the shovel hasn't gone into the ground yet. And the final deal hasn't been ratified yet. And even if it's just symbolic, I think those of us that believe either that there should be an indoor stadium or the option, you know, that it was something that maybe they could build a stadium that would allow for a roof to be added to the stadium at a later date should have been in the deal and get the state and County negotiators and Mark Poland cars, to answer for why that wasn't included in the deal. And also this fits into a broader theme of why was the stadium, why is the stadium being built to the exact specifications of what the Buffalo Bills want in a football only facility and not making it more of a multi-use facility that could allow for other sporting events or other events and activities. Cause I think the biggest value of an indoor stadium is all of the different things that can be done in the winter months with an indoor venue where an outdoor stadium just going to be sitting there full of snow for four months out of the year. True. You know, I've written a lot about how I don't think it works. Um, I don't think that it is possible to have a year round sports facility in a town that doesn't have something that gets you through the summer. Uh, I'm also talking about the downtown location versus orchard park. I think to me, it's all intertwined, uh, that, uh, If you want a sports corridor and you like to uh, fans or, or pundits like to take a look at how things have worked in places uh, like Detroit or Cleveland, which put an asterisk on Cleveland because the Browns already uh, want to sink hundreds of million dollars into their relatively new football stadium. And there's a belief that they actually want more than that, that that's just a facade to get you to the next step is a brand new stadium. Uh, the uh, progressive field where the Guardians play uh, is considered to be a, a borderline failure uh, because of the mixed use uh, development that has not taken place around that stadium. So, yeah, you can say it worked in Cleveland, but Cleveland doesn't think it's working. Uh, and Detroit, which I, I think it has been working there. Um, but these are baseball cities. These are baseball towns with 81 games of patrons for your bars and your hotels and your restaurants down there that keep them thriving, not thriving, but at least surviving uh, over the, the summer. I, I don't think Bison's games are going to uh, make it uh, a winner uh, to put a stadium downtown. And then the dome aspect of it, do you want a dome out in Orchard Park? So that's the extra part of it. But, you know, the Buffalo News did some uh, some terrific reporting about that uh, months ago 
And the takeaway after research uh, from local officials and, and you know, different uh, uh, chamber of commerce type uh, bodies uh, was that the best that Buffalo could hope for in a domed stadium would be the women's final four. And while that seems pretty attractive right now, because women's basketball is pretty hot with what happened with uh, LSU and Iowa over the weekend in general, that doesn't move the needle. And I think that Western New York's lack of hotels, there's all kinds of reasons why it wasn't going to work. Would I have liked to have seen it in a perfect world? Yes, I would like to have seen the stadium in uh, in the city. Um, but I also understand that uh, the money uh, being laid out for it, uh, it, there are a lot of people who are upset at the amount of public dollars uh, going into this stadium in Orchard Park with no roof. Uh, you put it in the city, it takes years longer to probably construct. Uh, and then the roof adds um, uh, a lot more expense to it. Uh, and when I say, uh, I'll, sorry to kind of meander around here, but the reason it would take longer is because you'd have to knock buildings down. Uh, you'd have to do things like environmental testing. Uh, there would be a lot, it would just not be the ability to strike an agreement start building. And so you're looking at overruns as materials become more expensive with inflation uh, over time, whatever projections you have to get your, your stadium done by 2025. Now you're looking at the 2027, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, the whole reason why the bills so desperately need a new stadium is the old one is falling apart. So the longer it takes you to build the new stadium, uh, the more risk you have of needing to do something drastic to keep the upper deck from crumbling. Um, so anyways, um, it, it's been discussed. Uh, I don't think it was going to work uh, in the city and the dome aspect of it. Again, women's final four. All right. You're not going to, you're probably not going to get the men's final four. You're not going to get a super bowl. You're not going to get a pro bowl. You're not going to, you know, the, they, those events just aren't there. And how many musical acts are there uh, that uh, that perform indoors in a stadium in the summer? They don't tour in the winter because they tour. They generally tour in the summer. Taylor Swift's not touring. She's not coming to us probably to the Buffalo Stadium in in February. Um, she does, people do their their outdoor state their their stadium tours in the summer because you can do it outdoors. And how many of those acts are there? U2, Bruce Springsteen, people who are nearing the end, the Rolling Stones. Are there any hot up-and-coming bands or, or relatively young bands that could fill a stadium? I mean, not I mentioned I Taylor Swift. Off. I mean, the, there's these country acts that I'm not overly familiar with that seem to do well in stadiums. but Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I don't think there's a high volume of events that uh, – an indoor football stadium was needed for, but there's all sorts of possibility, even if they're just local events that could be done in a facility that has a roof on it. That can't be done in a facility that doesn't have a roof on it. As far as events. I mean, I, I, I know you said you could get a women's final four, but not a men's final four, but maybe you could get a men's NCAA tournament regional. There's also possibilities for certain other multi-team event, uh, but they get those anyway, right? Games. Uh, they get the sub-regional, and a lot of the regionals are in bigger football-sized stadiums nowadays. They're professional wrestling, UFC, boxing type events that maybe could be held in a bigger venue than the downtown arena. Boxing, I just think in boxing's general, not in stadiums. But in theory, there's more that could be hosted at an indoor football stadium than can be hosted at an outdoor football stadium. And it's not just the roof element of it. It's the playing surface and the way the stadium is constructed to allow for soccer or baseball or maybe even an Olympic-type event that there could be room for a track, but there might not be room for a track. I think just in general, all of those things combined, that it's really just an outdoor football stadium for the Buffalo Bills, and it's not in any way a multi-use facility and whether it's the roof or the ability to play soccer or whatever you choose is the thing that can't be done there that you want, that you would have liked to have seen in the stadium. I think it sucks for a lot of fans and people that live in Western New York that they are building this $1.5 billion stadium 
with largely being paid for by public money that uh, has been talked about and thought about and wanted for years and years and years, and that ultimately it's going to be lacking in some people's eyes. And I think it would be, it's unfortunate that that's the case because with all of that's gone into this planning and waiting and negotiating and, and ultimately spending the money in building, it should be everything that the Buffalo and West New York sporting community want it to be. And if it's less than that, uh, you know, that's a shame. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. Uh, I'm I think my my points in this are are just the the unfortunate reality of the situation, not necessarily what I want or what I was rooting for. As, as I said all along, I, I, I think that the Pagoulas should have to pay every cent of this stadium and that it should be downtown. Um, but just one more point. Uh, before we move on, is that we're seeing a pretty strong movement among players, and I think NFL owners are getting there too, of the dangers of artificial turf and the injuries and the complaints that are going in with uh, SoFi Stadium or even on the grass stadiums like uh, we saw in, uh, in Glendale, Arizona for the Super Bowl. Uh, the field was grass in a dome, because uh, they can do that out there. They can grow it outside and roll it into the stadium. They do the same thing in Las Vegas. And the the field was trash uh, uh, for the Super Bowl. And so grass indoors, all these other things. So uh, the Bills going to a grass field, uh, you you couldn't do that uh, in, uh, in Western New York uh, with a dome. And I think that uh, the NFL is going to be pushing to do that as much as possible to find ways, uh, you know, you can't do it in Detroit, obviously. Um, there are places you just can't have grass and, and, and a roof. <laughs> but, but when it comes to making decisions on stadiums moving forward, uh, grass is going to be hugely important. And so that's another factor. Uh, probably coincidental because Terry Pagula has said all along he wanted grass. Uh, and then there have been studies that have come out uh, since he said that he, his basic belief is that football should be played on grass. Not that he was privy to all these studies about torn ACLs and, and, uh, and Achilles tears and whatever else. Um, so anyway, that's that. I, I just found it interesting that they, that a, a trivial part of the stadium approval process turned into a new debate on whether or not, or why there's no roof when I thought that that was pretty much dead and settled, but I guess it wasn't. Um, Sabres, Jonah, Devin Levi, looks like he's the man. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on what you've seen from him so far? I was trying to think of a good roof pun. He's raising the ceiling of what this team can accomplish. Although there hasn't, isn't necessarily the case because they did lose the game in Florida on Tuesday night and their playoff positioning and probability of making the playoffs are a lot lower than they would have been had the Sabres won that game. But it was a 2-1 loss with a goal by Alex Tuck that got overturned for an offsides challenge early in the first period. The Sabres in many ways played well enough to win and Devin Levi played well enough to win, at least in his save totals and his save percentage through his first two starts and goals against average under two. For a rookie goaltender in his first two starts, a 21-year-old, uh, we were told, or you know, goaltending experts will tell you it takes time to adjust from college and the shooters and being able to make that transition. You shouldn't expect even the best goalie in college hockey to be able to step right in and be a above-average NHL goaltender. And Devin Levi, at least through two games, has shown to be uh, a quality NHL goaltender. He might even start again tonight against Detroit and in a way, but because of the way he's playing and maybe the way the Sabres play defense in front of him, he's starting to look like the goalie that gives the Sabres the best chance to win. And I think even the people that were very excited about Devin Levi joining the Sabres and potentially being the goaltender of the future, maybe weren't expecting him to come in right away and improve the Sabres chances of winning when he's in the net. And the fact that he's been able to do that. Now there'll probably be some up and downs. I think, NHL shooters might figure out ways, some of his tendencies and ways to beat him. But one, he's been very effective and he looks to be everything the Sabres were hoping they were getting in a young goaltending prospect to potentially be their starter in the future. And the atmosphere in the arena for his first start and the way he played and the saves he made and the way he held up in the third period and that they won that game and he was the first star. It was 
it was that memorable event that a lot of fans were hoping it would be. And if you were there, or even if you watched on TV, I think Devin Levi's arrival on this team and, and winning his first start and establishing himself very early on is going to be something that's going to, I think, be looked back as, as a bit of a milestone in building up this young Sabres team in this era. And everything's going according to plan and looking, if not like it's going to lead the Sabres to the playoffs right now, looking like it's going to aid the Sabres' ability to be a postseason championship contending team in the near future. You know, we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago, and it's another reminder of how often the pendulum swings. Um, maybe I want to come up with a different metaphor because a pendulum is a bit of a timer. Uh, and when it comes to the National Hockey League, it doesn't seem to be on a on a timing device. It'll just swing and then stay there for a little bit and then swing back. But just a couple of weeks ago, we were comparing the end of this season to the end of last season and how much better the team is now than it was last season, but how much more depressed fans are than they were last season when they didn't make the playoffs and everybody was excited about what was to come because you could see the youth and John Vogel did one of his Sabre fan surveys for the athletic and the belief still was that uh, the majority of fans who responded to that survey did not view the Sabres as a playoff team this year. Um, and um, even with that, things felt like they were clunking to a, a conclusion. But now here we are with Devin Levi and the Sabres losing and tight games, important games, you know, this game against Florida, I'm saying, and it looks like their their chances are so thin that you can go ahead and pretty much count them out. Um, but now with Devin Levi and, and fans have seen him in the in the Sabres pads, in the uniform, that I think we're now twisted back to, all right, we're excited about next year again. Because if we had Devin Levi all season or if we had him for a little bit longer, uh, that might have made the difference. Now you got everybody with a year more experience. Um, you got guys coming up from Rochester, perhaps. Maybe Yuri Kulich is ready to go next year and all the different things that you can do and free agency and whatever. And goaltending looks like there's a reason for optimism again. I think we've swung in a couple of weeks uh, pretty drastically back to the excitement that we were uh, uh, detecting last year around this time. Missed the playoffs, still very excited, uh, got better uh, as opposed to what looked like uh, not making the playoffs and feeling terrible about the organization. And maybe it's time for Don Granado to get fired and for Kevin Adams to get some help. Yeah. Uh, and Uga Pekalukinen and Eric Comrie have both played pretty well in their last couple of starts. And the Sabres goaltending situation seems a lot less dire than it did a few weeks ago around the trade deadline when, when a lot of people were convinced that they had to make a goaltending move to be a competitive team. And while it, the goaltending that they're getting isn't pushing them into the playoffs this year, I think you're seeing some validation for Kevin Adams not making a goaltending move and keeping that spot open for Devin Levi and potentially Uka Pekalukkanen and Eric Comrie to also be on the NHL roster next year. They almost, they almost have one too many goalies going into camp next year, at least figuring out who's going to stay in Buffalo and who might go down to Rochester or how they're going to divvy up that workload. But that's better than the way it looked a couple of weeks ago when it looked like they didn't have any goaltender that they could rely on going into next season other than, you know, Craig Anderson, who may or may not be retiring and Devin Levi being an unknown. And there was a lot of uncertainty over whether Devin Levi would be ready right away or if he would have to spend all of next season playing in the minor leagues and that Devin Levi might be a great goaltending prospect, but it could be two, three years before Buffalo Sabres fans get to see that on at the NHL level on a regular basis. Now it's looking like it would be somewhat surprising if Devin Levi's not on the NHL team at the start of next year. Something would need to happen between now and then to make change the dynamics. It seems to be trending toward he's going to be on this team next year. And so they lost in Florida, and that was disappointing and really, I think, crushed their playoff hopes. They're not mathematically out of it, but it's going to take a lot. Probably going to have to win almost every game to, to get into the playoffs. But they lost 2-1, to one, and they didn't give up too many goals, and they didn't seem to get 
uh, outplayed in their own defensive zone the way they were in, in their earlier losing streak. And I think even though they lost, it sounds silly to say, but losing two to one is so much better than losing seven to one or even losing like seven to five. And there were questions about, you know, hey, can this team, how competitive can this team be if they don't play defense and they don't keep the puck out of their own net and they don't and they hang their goaltender out to dry so often and playing the way they did in these past two games that Devin Levi started and even the game that they won in Philadelphia, they gave up a few more goals, but you're not as worried about this team going forward and, and defensively and the makeup of the roster. They've shown that they can win a low scoring game and win based on their defense and their goaltending potentially in the future. Jonah, I wanted to, to ask you about UB basketball before we uh, wrap up. Uh, George Halkovich uh, made a hire, uh, a name that we know from uh, UB's past. Uh, Calvin Cage uh, is leaving Reggie Witherspoon's staff at Canisius to join uh, George Halkovich. Um, Cage, I remember him as a pretty good scorer uh, back in the day for Reggie's uh, teams. Um, I think he led the the conference in scoring one year, uh, his senior year, I think. Um, anyways, what do we know about Calvin as a as an assistant? Uh, how does this help uh, UB basketball? Yeah, Kevlin was a, a high-scoring player for UB and a three-point shooter a little bit ahead of his time in the distance that he would shoot from and was an exciting player to watch during a good era of UB basketball. And he has been on Reggie Witherspoon's staff at Canisius for the past four years. I, I like this hire for UB for George Halkovich in his first hire uh, because I like the connection to the past. Um, he's somebody who has experience coaching and recruiting at the division one level, even though it was a smaller league and, and, you know, you can't really point to a lot of recruiting successes that Canisius has had in the last four years or so, but he, he knows the lay of the land and they're going to be recruiting from similar areas and player pools. I, I don't know if, if he's the most accomplished and then the lead assistant and the best recruiter that gets brought in. I don't know if that makes for the most impressive staff, but if he's among uh, a group of coaches that have different recruiting connections in different parts of the country and different strengths and different experiences. I, I do like the fact that you got a former UB player that knows the area, that knows the fan base and the community a little bit, and I like it. I don't know. I haven't asked uh, some people that would know this yet, uh, you know, kind of what the Reggie Witherspoon Canisius reaction is to this, but I'm hoping that this works functions as a little bit of an olive branch between those two programs and those two coaching staffs. And that maybe if you have some of Reggie Witherspoon's protégés and former players back on that UB staff, that will mend some of those fences between, you know, the guy who was really the face of that program for a long, long time. And hopefully that at some point, you know, the, those two entities can be brought back together in a more amicable way than we've seen over the past few years. Let me throw a name at you because I didn't realize that he was out of coaching and it's only been briefly and he's back here in town. I know that. Um, what about Turner battle? I know he's the athletics director at park school, but here's a guy who was an assistant for Reggie after he stopped playing uh, one of the great players in UB history. And he's gone to the NCAA tournament as an assistant before he was at Chattanooga. He was at Alabama, Birmingham, East Tennessee state, middle Tennessee uh, most recently. Um, is there anything that could be there? I mean, it just seems like it would be a pretty good, uh, a ambassador for the program, but also somebody with chops. Yes. And Turner battle was an individual who four years ago when the job was open, uh, got at least a first interview, uh, was considered as somebody to at least take a look at in the obvious advantages of bringing in an all-time great player that the fan base knows and how popular that hire might have been and his experience coaching and recruiting at the division one level around the country after he left UB. He didn't get the job then. Fast forward four years, he's been out of coaching for one season. And I had asked around, you know, honestly, I even talked to Turner very briefly about this. He didn't get a call or any consideration for the head coaching job this time around. I was a little surprised at that myself. But the way it was explained to me was that it wasn't all that surprising that somebody who got out of coaching wasn't in a position to be a head coach. And maybe some of that is how quickly the landscape has changed with 
transfers and NIL and bringing somebody who's out of the game might not be able to uh, catch up as quickly. And it might just be, you know, if somebody gives up coaching and goes into athletic administration at the high school level, um, maybe you question their their motivations and their career paths and how much they really want some of these coaching jobs. I, I'm, I'm not questioning that myself, but I think that's something that maybe an athletic director might think about with someone who, who made the decision that Turner Battle made. All of that said, I think he'd be an excellent hire as an assistant coach for UB and possibly even Canisius, if something like that makes sense. And I would like to see Turner maybe back in the local coaching ranks. Um, maybe it is as a high school coach is where his coaching career goes. I, I think he might have not he might have gotten a little disenchanted with all the travel that's involved with being a division one assistant in recruiting. And, you know, maybe he isn't altogether interested in jumping right back into that. But I was a little surprised that his name didn't come up a little bit stronger. He didn't get better consideration for the head coaching job to at least, you know, maybe talk to him and see if he made sense. And, and who knows, maybe tomorrow they announced that he's the associate head coach at Buffalo. I don't anticipate that happening. Um, but I think it would be a good addition to any of the local staffs if somebody wanted to to bring Turner Battle back into the college basketball business. You were at uh, George Halkovich's uh, introductory news conference. Uh, what, did, what were your thoughts just on, I know sometimes it can be dangerous, but first impressions, uh, how, how, he, how he came off as, as a human being? He came off. Rather impressively, but pretty much all of these coaches do. It, it, the function of these introductory press conferences, it's almost like a, uh, you know, when you're introducing the political candidate at a Republican or Democratic National Convention, it's a festive event and everybody has very nice things to say about each other and the situation and the city that they're moving to and things like that. So it's, it's they're very all wearing hard. the appropriate lapel pin. Yeah, yeah. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to be unimpressive in that setting. And if I think back to maybe, one coach that I was maybe least impressive, least impressed with in that kind of public introductory setting, it was Lance Leifold, who, because of the nature of his personality and the way he really had to come out of his shell after a couple of seasons, uh, you know, he wasn't really, you know, there wasn't as much glamour and pomp and circumstance when he was introduced. And I remember feeling that, the feeling like this doesn't feel like that big of a deal. And he turned out to be an excellent coach. So winning the press conference and impressing the donors and the fans and and people who are watching on the live stream at your first press conference isn't nearly as important as actually getting to work and doing the job and, and impressing in, you know, February, March, and April. All of that said, I was somewhat impressed with, uh, with his demeanor and even as kind of sappy and cliche it was, even how much he seemed to be uh, happy, him and his wife, and looking forward to living in Buffalo. And he had he shared an anecdote about when Villanova played here in the 2017 NCAA tournament and lost, uh, you know, that allowed him to go to the final four as a spectator and have some more social time where he ended up meeting his wife, you know, it kind of implied that if it wasn't for that loss in Buffalo, he never would have met his wife and his life wouldn't have turned out the same way. So there's a kind of a serendipitous. And even if you, you know, there, there's some debate over how many coaches turned down this job, but it's, you know, something more than one and something maybe less than six. But the fact that, you know, it took a few steps in the coaching search for UB to land on uh, George Halkovich and it, but it all worked. It seemed to work out for a coach that wants to be here and a school that wants this coach. And even if it took some different things and that, you know, lost to Wisconsin six years ago that when Villanova was number one overall seed in the tournament, how the different kind of butterfly effects of, how all of that played out together to get a situation where it does seem like the UB administration is happy with the coaching hire they made. And the coach that's here wants to be here where there were a number of other coaches that either interviewed or were offered the job that ultimately did not want to be here. And, you know, you can compare that to some of the things that have gone on with the Sabres over the past year and transfer portal and players that come and go and leave. Um, It does seem like you have a situation. What we got used to with the bills. Right, and the bills Everybody are now, from Dre yeah. Archer to Vontae Davis to whatever. I mean, it's pretty common. Hell, even go back far. I mean, it's it's buff. That's Buffalo sports history. Is the person who doesn't want to be here needing to be convinced 
uh, or just telling you screw off. Jim Kelly, you know, Mister Buffalo, didn't was was taking shots at Buffalo as as frequently as he could. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to derail you there. No, no. But yeah, and, and, sometimes yeah, you got to find somebody who wants to be here. Right, and there's no sense of that in this instance. Um, you know, there's a lot of that going on around local basketball programs with players in the transfer portal. Um, so maybe it's nice to see with this kind of marquee basketball hire with the UV men's job that, uh, you know, it does seem like a, a mutually mutual excitement from both the UB administration, the campus community, and the coach that's coming in. Uh, we'll see how that extends to the current roster of players and, and recruits that they're targeting. Um, but it's, it, it had, it had the feel, it was a feel good event, which most of those are, but it, it, it did not disappoint if you were looking for reasons to be excited about this hire, uh, the introductory press conference seemed to follow along that narrative. Well, Jonah, thank you for this. And, uh, for all you do for Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. Uh, anything else we want to talk about before we wrap up? You got a master's prediction? I don't know anything about golf. I know it's not going to be Tiger. Well, and if it is, you know, we're going to make you eat your words next week. Sure. Um, if it's Tiger, I'll eat this, eat what's in this candle, whatever this wax is. The Bills are going back to St. John Fisher for training camp. Is that surprise you at all i feel like that's something we already knew it's fireside redwood sandalwood clove so you can get an idea of what would be what i would be choking down if i did uh, so if tiger wins i'll melt down this wax and you know what i don't understand why people do that like radio guys do that maybe more than anybody else right. like if this thing happens that is you know there's a chance it could happen i'm gonna do this terrible thing for my own health and nobody asked me to uh you know make this bet but you're pretty confident that Tiger Woods, perhaps the greatest golfer of all time, is not going to win a golf tournament that he's won six times, seven times? Well, he did make comments this week that he's just going to enjoy this one because he doesn't know how many more of how many more times he's going to get out on this course. It's not even how many more times I can win. I, I He's kind of to the point where, eh. And you wonder, too. I, I don't think that Tiger Woods is the type of guy who's just going to keep showing up at the Masters to make the, you know, to play. He might show up and, uh, you know, take part in the dinner or whatever events, but uh, you get the impression that uh, he's not going to be toddling along the, the course at, at uh, 55 years old uh, or 60. Uh, so yeah, his comments uh, this week lead me to believe that uh, even he doesn't think he's going to be competitive this week. So there, that's it. Uh, Jonah, thanks. And uh, thank you, everyone out there, for listening or watching. Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and Business Consultants. Uh, please, if you don't already, uh, give us a rating, thumb up, thumb down, five stars, whatever the hell you want, and uh, give us a subscribe. Click that subscribe button on your platform of choice. We're on all the big ones. Uh, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, missing one. Well, YouTube, of course, um, SoundCloud, even I'm still missing one. Anyways, thanks to everybody well, out there for listening and for supporting. And if, Hey, maybe there's one that we're not on that, that people would like to have us join that feed. And maybe you got some friends, you know, recommend our podcast to friends of yours that you think might like it and, and tell them to look for us. We're on a lot of different platforms. We're probably on the one that you use the most. Amen. And that's the way I want to close out this um, Easter weekend slash Passover edition of Tim Graham and Friends uh, with an amen. Hallelujah. CTBK is more than just a full service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed 
Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you.